my favorite theorem, a podcast about mathematics and everyone's favorite theorem. And I'm your host, Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. This is your other host. Hi, I'm Evelyn Lamb, a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City. So how are things going, Kevin? Um, okay, we're, we're, we're hiring a lot. And so I haven't eaten a meal at home this week. And, and maybe, maybe not last week either. And, you know, you think that's going to be fun until you're in the middle of it. But it's, it's been great meeting all yeah. these, these new people, and I'm really excited about getting some new colleagues in the department. So it's, it's, it's a fun time to be at the University of Florida. We're hiring something like 500 new faculty in the next two years. It's, wow. Yeah, that's pretty ambitious. Not, not in the math department, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I wish. Yeah, we, we could solve the, 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 the yeah. mathematician glut just like that, right? Um, so yeah, how, that would be great. How are things in Salt Lake? Oh, Things are pretty good. It's yeah. a, a warm winter here, which mm -hmm. will be very relevant for our listeners when they're listening to this in the summer. Mm, that's right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's hiring season at the University of Utah where my spouse works. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, he's been doing all of that uh, right. handshaking. Right, the and handshaking everything. and the taking to the dean and the showing around and the eating. Yeah, right. It's, oh, it's fun. It's good yeah. stuff. Anyway, enough about that. Yep. I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, today we are pleased to welcome Emily Reel from Johns Hopkins. Hi, Emily. Hi. Yeah, tell everyone about yourself. Let's see, I've um, known I wanted to be a mathematician since I knew that that was a thing that somebody could be. Um, I uh, So I that's kind of what I'm up to. I um, Let's see, I'm at Johns Hopkins now. Before that, I was a, a postdoc at Harvard where I was also an undergraduate. Um, and my PhD is from Chicago. I uh, was a student of uh, Peter May, an algebraic topologist, but I work mostly in category theory and particularly in uh, category theory as it relates to homotopy theory. So how many students does Peter have? Like 5,000 or something? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was his 50th and wow. that okay. was seven years ago. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's yeah. still he's still kicking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so Emily and I have kind of a weird, we, we never actually met, but we both lived in Chicago and I kind of replaced Emily in a chamber music group Oh, I didn't know that. So yeah, yeah so I I played with with Walter and the gang after I guess shortly after you graduated. I moved there in 2011. So, um, yeah. So so they're like, oh, you must know Emily Real because you're both mathematicians. You play viola. I was like, no, that sounds like a cool person though because violists are all the best people. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emily, you've told us, and I've had time to think about it, but still haven't thought of my own favorite application of this theorem. But What's your favorite theorem? Well, so I, I should confess, my, my favorite theorem is not the theorem that I want to talk about today. Um, so, I mean, my, my actual, maybe I'll talk about what I don't want to talk about briefly, if you if sure. indulge me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a category theorist, and every category theorist's favorite theorem is the innate dilemma. Sure. Um, says that an object in a mathematical object of some kind is uniquely determined by the relationships that it has to all other objects of the same type. Um, and in fact, it's uniquely characterized in two different ways. You can either look at maps from the object you're trying to understand or mm -hmm. maps to the object you're trying to understand. And either way uh, suffices to determine it. Um, so I mean, this this is an amazing theorem. It's There's a joke in category theory that all proofs are the innate dilemma. I mean, all mm -hmm. proofs to the innate dilemma. Um, but the reason I, I don't want to talk about it today is twofold. Number one, it's the discussion might sound a little more philosophical than than mathematical because mm -hmm. um, I mean one one thing that the Nader Lemma does is it it orients the philosophy of category theory mm -hmm. and secondly there's this this kind of wonderful experience you have as a student when you see the Nader Lemma for the first time because the the statement you'll probably see 
is, is not the one that I just described, but sort of a weirder one involving natural transformations from representable functors. And right. you see this and then you're like, okay, I guess that's plausible, but why on earth would anybody care about this? And then it sort of gradually dawns on you over, you know, however many years in, in my case, uh, why it's, it's such a profound and useful observation. So I don't want to uh, ruin that experience for anybody. <laughs> so so, so you're, you're not worried about getting excommunicated, are you? Right. Well, right. So that's why I had to admit, <laughs> confess that my, I, I was joking with some category theorists. I was just in Sydney visiting uh, uh, the center of Australian category theory, which mm -hmm. is, is really the name of the, the group. And it's also sort of the center of Australian category theory, but yeah. um, right. So I, I, I want to be invited back. So, uh, so yes, of course, my favorite theorem is the innate dilemma. But uh, what I want to talk about today instead is uh, a theorem I really like because it's um, you know a relatively simple idea, and it it comes up all over mathematics. Once it's a sort of a pattern you know to look for, it's uh, quite likely that you'll stumble upon it, you know, fairly frequently. Um, and the the proof, you know, it's just sort of a general proof in category theory uh, specializes in each context to a really nice argument, I think, in that particular context. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, the, the theorem is called uh, right adjoints preserve limits. All, All right. right. So uh, I'm a topologist. So to me, um, you know, we, we tend to modify, we put a modifier in front of our limit. Um, so there's direct mm -hmm. and inverse, but limit in this context means inverse limit, right? Right, that's right. Yeah. That's the historical terminology for what right. a would just call a limit. Right, and then co so so I always think of inverse limits as um, well, essentially they're products, more mm -hmm. or less, and then direct limits are unions or direct sums kind of thing, right? Is that right? Right. I hope that's right. That's right. I'm a I'm embarrassed if I'm wrong. Okay, good. <laughs> no, and actually, you're you're alluding to. I mean, a great thing about theorems and category theory is when you prove any theorem, you always get at least one other theorem for free. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. which is the dual theorem. So, I mean, a, a category is just, it's um, a collection of objects and then a collection of uh, transformations between them that you depict mm -hmm. graphically as arrows. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of like in projective geometry, um, you can dualize the axioms. You can turn around the direction of the arrows and you still have a category. So mm -hmm. what that means, if you have any theorem in category theory that says for all categories, blah, 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 um, mm -hmm. Then you can apply that in particular to the opposite category where the things are mm -hmm. turned out. Um, in this case, there's secretly two categories involved. So we have uh, three dual versions of the original theorem, the most useful being that uh, left adjoints preserve co-limits, which mm -hmm. are the, the uh, direct limits that you're talking about. So okay. whether you have inverse limits or whether you have uh, direct limits, there's a, there's a version of this theorem that's relevant mm -hmm. to that. Do we want to unpack what adjoint functors are? Yes. Yeah, okay. let's do that. Right. <laughs> for, for those of us who uh, don't really know category theory. Um, That's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's a language that um, some people have learned to speak and some people uh, haven't become acquainted with yet. And that's totally fine. So the firstly, you know, a category is like a type of mathematical object, basically. It's like a theory of mathematical objects. So we have a category of groups and then the, the transformations between groups are the group homomorphisms. We have a category of sets and the functions between them. We have a category of spaces and the continuous functions. So the, these are the categories. Um, and then a morphism between categories is something called a functor. Um, so it's a way of converting objects of one type to objects of another type. So a group has an underlying set, for instance. Um, a set can be regarded as a discrete space. These are the, these translations. Um, 
So uh, sometimes, uh, so if you have a functor from one category to another, and then another functor that's going back in the reverse direction, uh, those functors can uh, satisfy a special dual relationship. And this, this is a pair of adjoint functors. One of them gets called the left adjoint, one of them gets called the right adjoint. Um, and what the duality says is that if you look at maps out of the image of the left adjoint, then those correspond bijectively and naturally, which is a technical term I'm not going to get into, um, the maps in the other category into the image of the right adjoint. So maps in one category out of the image of the left adjoint correspond um, naturally to maps in the other category into the image of the right adjoint. So uh, let me let me just mention one sort of prototypical example. Um, yeah. So, uh, so there's uh, free and forgetful constructions mm -hmm. um, in adjoint pairs. So I mentioned that a group has an underlying set. Um, the reverse process takes a set and freely makes a group out of that set. So the elements of that group will then be words in the, the letters and formal inverses, modulo some relations, blah, blah, blah. But the, the sort of special property of these free groups is that if I look at a group homomorphism that's defined on a free group, so this is a map in the category of groups out of an object in the image of the left adjoint, um, to define that, I just have to tell you where the generators go and I'm allowed to make those choices freely. So I just sure. need to define a function of sets mm -hmm. uh, from the generating set into the underlying set of the group that I'm mapping into. Right. So that's this adjoint relationship. So group homomorphisms from a free group to whatever group correspond to functions from the generators of that free group to the underlying set I always feel like I'm I'm like about to drown when I try to think about category theory. But yeah, I I really like when I, it's hard for me to read category theory. But when people talk about it, I always feel like, oh, okay, this is I I see why people like this so much. Well, well re reading category theory is sort of like um, you know the whole the picture being worth a thousand words kind of thing, right? Because the diagrams are so lovely, and and. There's so much information embedded in a diagram. So, uh, you know, category theory used to get a bad rap, right? It's, you know, abstract nonsense or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's shown to be incredibly powerful as, uh, as, certainly as an organizing principle, but also just in being able to help us push boundaries in various fields of, you know, really, if you think about it just right, if you think about things as functors, lots of things come out almost for free, or it feels like for free. Right, the category theorist would say, no, 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 there's a ton of work over there. So, so what's, what, what's an example of this particular theorem? Well, but for, wait, so before yeah. I go there, so yeah. exactly to this point, uh, yeah. there's this great quote by Eilenberg and Steenrod. Mm -hmm. uh, so Eilenberg was one of the founders of category mm -hmm. theory. So Saunders McLean and Samuel Eilenberg wrote a paper, The General Theory of Natural Equivalences, in the 40s that defined these categories and functors and then also notion of naturality that I was alluding to. Mm -hmm. um, and they thought that was going to be both the first and last. Anyway, so, but, um, you know, 10 years later, so Eilenberg and Steenrod wrote this book, Foundations of Algebraic Topology, that incorporated these diagrammatic techniques into, you know, a, a previously existing mathematical area. Algebraic topology had been around at least since the beginning of the 20th century, I'd say. So, mm -hmm. um, and they, they, quote, they write, uh, the diagrams incorporate a large amount of information. Their use provides extensive savings in space and in mental effort. In the case of many theorems, the setting up of the correct diagram is the major part of the proof. So we therefore urge that the reader stop at the end of each theorem and attempt to construct for himself. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm 
the quote yeah, here. So yeah. <laughs> the relevant diagram before examining the one which is given in the text, once this is done, the subsequent demonstration can be followed more readily. In fact, the reader can usually supply it himself. Right, like proving Maya via Taurus, for example, you just kind of set up the right diagram mm -hmm. and in, mm -hmm. in principle, it drops out, right? Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Right, and I, I mean, in general, in category theory, the, the definitions, sort of the concepts are the hard thing. The, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. are, uh, are generally easier. So, and in, right. in fact, I'd like to prove, uh, prove my favorite theorem for you. And I'm gonna do it in a particular example. So, and actually I'm gonna do it in the dual. So instead I'll, I'll prove that uh, left adjoints preserve co-limits. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, so the, the co-limit, well, so in fact, the statement I'm going to prove, the specific statement I'm going to mm -hmm. prove by using the, the proof that left adjoints preserve co-limits is that for natural numbers, A, B, and C, mm -hmm. I'm going to prove that A times the quantity B plus C mm -hmm. is equal to A times B plus A times C. Distributive okay. law. Yeah. Yeah, yeah distributive <laughs> multiplication over addition. So that's, that's yeah. a um, Okay, so how are we going to prove this? So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to categorify my natural numbers. And, you know, what is a natural number? What's a cardinality of a finite set? So okay. um, in place of the natural numbers A, B, and C, I'm going to think about sets, which I'll also just call A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the natural numbers and the cardinality of the elements. Um, okay. mm -hmm. um, yeah, cardinality being the size, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. So A, B, and C are now sets. Um, if we're if we're trying to prove the statement about natural numbers, those should be finite sets. But the, the theorem is actually true for arbitrary sets, so it doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. So I've replaced A, B, and C by sets. But now I had I had this operation times and this operation plus. So I sh I need to categorify those as well. I'm going to replace them by by operations on sets. Okay. So uh, what's something you can do to two sets so that the cardinalities add, so that the sizes add. Disjoint you union. Could, yeah, you could union them. <laughs> That's right. So disjoint union is going to be that my interpretation of the symbol plus. And uh, we also need an interpretation of time. So what can I do for sets to uh, multiply the cardinalities? Take the products of your pairs of elements yeah. in each set. Right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So, and the uh, so we have the Cartesian product of sets, and we have the uh, disjoint union of sets. So, this the statement now is for any sets A, B, and C. I'm going to prove that if I take the disjoint union B plus C, and then form the Cartesian product with A, then that set is isomorphic to has in particular the same number of elements as the set that you get by first forming the product A times B and also A times C, and then taking the disjoint union. Okay. And so the, the disjoint union here is one of these co-limits, one of these direct limits. So it's uh, when you stick two things next to each other, it's a uh, co-product would be the categorical term for it. This is one of these co-limits. Um, the uh, act of multiplying a set by a fixed set A is in fact a left adjoint. And I'll, um, I'll make that a little clear as I give the argument. Okay. Okay, so let's just try and begin. So um, one way to... Uh, so the way I'm going to prove uh, that A times B plus C is A times B plus A times C is actually using a Yoneda lemma style proof because the Yoneda lemma comes up everywhere. <laughs> I show that these sets are isomorphic by, by arguing that functions from them to another set X uh, correspond. So if okay. uh, sets have exactly the same 
functions to every other set, then they they must be isomorphic. Um, that's okay. the innate dilemma. Let's let's just set <laughs> that as a principle. Um, let's now consider a function from the set A times the disjoint union B plus C to another set X. So the first thing I can do with such a function is it's it's something called currying or maybe uncurring. I never remember which way these go. So I have a function here of two variables. The, the domain is the set A times the disjoint union B plus C. So I can instead regard this as a function from B plus C, the disjoint union, into the set of functions from A to X. Yes. So rather than have A times B plus C to X, I have from B plus C to functions from A to the X. Mm -hmm. There I've just transposed across an adjunction. That was the adjunction bit. So now I have a function from the disjoint union B plus C to the set of functions from A to the X. And uh, when I'm mapping out of a disjoint union, that means I, it's just like a case analysis. Either I, I need to define a function like this, I have to define firstly a function from B to functions from A to the X, mm -hmm. and also from C to functions from A to the X. So I have mm -hmm. a single function is now given by these two functions. And if I look at the piece now, which is a function from B to functions from A to the X, uh, by this uncurring thing, that's similarly, that's equally just a function from A times B to X. Right. And similarly on the C piece, it's just my function from C to functions from A to X is just a function from A times C to X. So now I have a, a function from A times B to X and also a function from A times C to X. Those amalgamate to define a single function from the disjoint union, mm -hmm. A times B to X or disjoint union A times C to X. Um, so therefore, uh, in summary, functions from A times the disjoint union B plus C to X correspond in this way to functions from A times B, disjoint union A times C to X. And so therefore the sets A times B plus C and A times B plus A times C are isomorphic. Yeah, and now I feel like, now I feel like I know a category theory proof. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so what's great about that proof is it's completely independent of the context. It's all about the formal relationships between the mathematical objects. So if you want to interpret now A, B, and C as vector spaces and mm -hmm. plus as the direct sum, which mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned as an example of a co-limit, and mm -hmm. times as the tensor product, um, mm -hmm. I've just proven that the tensor product distributes over the direct sum, mm -hmm. um, like mm -hmm. modules over commutative rings. So that's right. That's a much more complicated setting, but the exact same argument goes through. Um, and of course, there are like lots of other examples of limits and co-limits. So, you know, one thing that kind of defined me as an undergraduate is that if I have just a function between sets, the inverse image preserves both unions and intersections, whereas the direct image only preserves unions, but not intersections. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. There's an adjoint reason for that. The inverse image is a functor between these post-set categories of sets of subsets, and it admits both left and right adjoints, so it mm -hmm. preserves all limits and all co-limits, so both intersections and unions, whereas this left adjoint, which is the direct image, only preserves uh, the co-limits, not the... Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So here's a philosophical question. You didn't want to get philosophical, but here it comes anyway, right? <laughs> sure. So, so category theory, in a lot of ways, reminds me of the new math, right? We had this idea that we were going to teach set theory to, to kindergartners. Mm -hmm. um, would it be the, the, the right way to teach mathematics, right? I mean, so you, you, know, you, you mentioned all these things that sort of drop out of this rather straightforward fact. So should we, should we start there or should we just develop this whole library 
you know, because like the example of Tensor Products uh, distributing over direct sums. Mm. I mean, you know, everybody's seen a proof of that in Atiyah and McDonald or whatever, right? And okay, fine, it works. But wouldn't it be nice just to get out your sledgehammer and go, no, 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 look, left, you know, uh, <laughs> limits and adjoints commute, boom. So I, I use, I give little hints of category theory when mm -hmm. I uh, teach sort of undergraduate points at topology. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so in Moncrie's, uh, you know, chapter two is, you know, constructing the product topology, constructing mm -hmm. the quotient topology, mm -hmm. constructing subspace topologies. And um, rather than, you know, treat these as all as like completely separate topics, I sort of group all the limits together and I group all the co-limits together and I mm -hmm. present uh, the, the features of um, the constructions, you know, this is the coarsest topology so that such and such maps are continuous. This is the finest topology so that mm -hmm. the dual maps are continuous mm -hmm. in that way. But I'm, I don't define limit or co-limit. Uh, I, yeah. I think uh, too much of a digression. And similarly in teaching, well, in teaching abstract algebra uh, to undergraduates and sort of an honors undergraduate course, I, I do say a little bit about categories, because I, I guess I think it's useful to precisely understand function composition before um, get into technical arguments about group mm -hmm. homomorphisms. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the first isomorphism theorem is the same, essentially, for, for sets and for groups and for rings and for modules. And if we're going to see the same theorem over and over again, we should acknowledge that that's, that's sort of what happened. Right, but, right. But yeah. no, I, th I think, I think, uh, I mean, it's, uh, category theory is not hard. You know, mm -hmm. we could certainly teach it on day one. To undergraduates, but appreciating what it's for um, takes yeah. some medical sophistication. And right, I, don't know, I, think it's, I think it's worth waiting. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of need to, to travel on the path a little while before mm -hmm. uh, before bringing that and sort of seeing that seeing it from that point of view. Yeah, right. I mean, the other thing to acknowledge is it's not equally relevant to all mathematical disciplines. So. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in algebraic geometry, you can't even define the basic objects of study anymore without using categorical language, but that's, you know, that's not true for PDEs. So, um, so another fun thing we like to do on this podcast is we uh, ask our guests to pair their theorem with something. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what have you chosen to pair this theorem with? Right. Uh, so I've, I guess maybe in honor of uh, the way that everyone and I almost met, <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, chosen a piece that I have loved since I was... Um, in middle school. Um, it's uh, Benjamin Britten's Simple Symphony, uh, his movement three, mm -hmm. um, which is the sentimental Sarabande. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. um, the reason I, I love this piece is, well, so, um, so you know, Benjamin Britten's a, a British composer. I found out when I was uh, looking this up just this morning that he composed this when he was 20. <laughs> you know, it's, mm. and oh, it's wow. crazy. The, the themes that he used, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to understand. This isn't, uh, you know, sort of, dark stormy classical music it's you know the themes are relatively simple and they're things that he wrote i think as a young mm -hmm. teenager it's, uh insane to me but um what i what i love about this piece you know is it's um i mean it's it starts in this sort of it's just for string orchestra so um you know it's kind of a simple um mix of different textures and it you know it starts in this very stormy dramatic kind of unified fashion where the you know sort of the violins are carrying the main theme and the you know so the cellos are kind of echoing it in a um, you know sort of a much deeper register. And um, when I played this in an orchestra, you know, I was maybe thirteen or so. I was in the viola section, and um, you know, the violas sort of never get good parts. You know, it's, <laughs> I think um, I mean I think violas are kind of like the category. The violas in the orchestra are kind of like um, category theory in mathematics. If you you take away the viola section. Um, 
you know, you won't, it's not like a, a main theme will disappear, but you know, all of a sudden the orchestra sounds horrible and you're, you're right. sort of not, <laughs> why, what's, what's, what's missing. Um, mm. And then, you know, sort of very occasionally like the, the clouds part and the violas do get to play a, a, a more prominent role. And that's exactly what happens in this movement. So, uh, you know, a few minutes in, um, it gets quiet. And then all of a sudden there's this beautiful viola soli, which means that the entire viola section gets to play mm -hmm. this prominent theme while the kind of rest of the orchestra bows out. And it's just this really lovely moment. You know, the violas will all play like way too loud because we're like so excited. <laughs> it's actually. <laughs> And then, you know, then of course, like 16 bars later, the violins take the theme away. So like, you know, the violins get everything, but. Yeah, I mean, it's always short lived when we have that moment of glory. <laughs> I mean, I still remember, I haven't played this in the orchestra for you know, 20 years now and I'd still remember it like it was yesterday, so. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I listened to this after you um, shared it with us over email and, you know, I was kind of turned it on and then did something else and then you know, the moment that happened, I was like, oh, this is the part she was talking about. <laughs> this is the part I was talking about, yeah. We'll be, we'll be sure yeah. to highlight that part. Yeah, well, I, I must say the the comparison of category theory to violas is like the single best way to get me to want more, <laughs> to know more about category theory. Don't know how effective <laughs> it is for other people, but like you, you hooked me for sure. <laughs> so we also like to give our guests a chance to plug whatever they're doing. Um, when did your book come out? Pretty recently, a year, year or two ago? You've got two of them, right? The two, or... right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. I do. Uh, so I, 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 my new book is called Category Theory and Context. Right. And its intended audience is mathematicians and other disciplines. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you know you like mathematics. Why my category theoretic ideas be relevant? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And actually, in, in the context of my favorite theorem, the, the proof that right adjoints preserve limits is actually the watermark on the, on the book. Oh, so nice. <laughs> Um, and I, I had nothing to do with that. The, whoever the graphic designer is, uh, sort mm -hmm. of, like you say, the diagrams are very pretty. It sort of like pulled them out, and um, and that's the watermark. But um, so it's it's something I've taught at the advanced undergraduate or beginning graduate level, and I don't know. It's a lot of fun to to write. It's something interesting about the writing process is you know I wanted a category theory book that was really rich with um, you know compelling examples mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm ideas and uh, so I emailed um, all of I emailed the category theory mailing list I posted on a category theory blog and I, I just got all these wonderful suggestions from colleagues so um, for instance row reduction uh, uh, the you know the fact that the elementary row operations can be implemented by multiplication by uh, an elementary matrix mm -hmm. and then that matrix you take the identity matrix and you perform the row operation on that matrix. That's mm -hmm. the innate dilemma. Um, so a oh, colleague friend wow. okay. told me about that example. And, and um, so it's really kind of a 
community effort in, in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And our listeners, our regular listeners, found out on a previous episode that uh, that you're also an elite athlete. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, so I, I think I already mentioned the center of Australian category theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, there's this uh, really famous category theory group based in Sydney, Australia. And when I was a, a PhD student, I, I went for a few months and uh, to visit um, uh, Dominic Verity, who's now my main uh, research collaborator. So it was, a, I mean, it was a really eventful trip. And um, I had been a, a rugby player in college. So then when I was in Sydney, I thought, well, it might be fun to try this thing called Australian rules football, which mm-hmm. I sort of heard of about as another contact sport. Um, and I just, uh, completely fell in love. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful game mm-hmm. in my opinion. And so then I came back to the U S and, uh, looked up Australian rules football. I wanted to, to keep mm-hmm. playing and, uh, it, it does exist here, but it's, it's pretty obscure. And uh, I guess a consequence of that meant I was uh, able to play on the U S women's national team because oh, the, that's great. <laughs> the skill level is yeah. kind of, so, <laughs> so I've been, um, doing that for the the past seven years. And what's great about it is occasionally we go and play tournaments in Mm -hmm. Australia. So whenever that happens, I get to go visit my research colleagues in Sydney and then, you know, go down to Melbourne, which is really the center of footy and um, combine these two passions. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. We we were listening, we were uh, talking about this with John Urschel who plays, you know, American rules football or, or recently retired. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, uh, I really wish this is one time where I wish we had a video feed for this because his face yeah. that we were trying to explain, which, uh, you know, two mathematicians who have like sort of seen this on a, a TV in a bar trying to explain what mm-hmm. Australian rules football is to him. It was he was just had this look of bewilderment. Right. Like, I, was, I was explaining yeah, that the, 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 the pitch is a big oval and there's these posts on the ends. And, and yeah. yeah, he was yeah. just like, what? Wait a minute! Is it? <laughs> yeah, his, his face was priceless it there. Was, so, it it, it um, was good. Yeah, I used to I used yeah. to love watching it. I, I used to watch it on in the early days of ESPN. I thought it was a fascinating, really fun game to watch. So, well, Emily, this has been fun. Uh, thanks for joining yeah. us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've I've loved listening to the past episodes, and um, I can't wait to see what's in the pipeline. So. Yeah, well, yeah, neither, neither can we. Too. I think we're still figuring it out, but um, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're having a good time too. But yeah, all right. Thanks again, Emily. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to my favorite theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford. Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at My Favorite Theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. <laughs>